The Reluctant Conformist A book by Richard Cowley Chapter 2 Episode 2 The Cadet Whilst Magnus's maternal grandmother, Maud, was busy calling upon her paranormal powers to predict the weather or future football pools winning teams, her husband Harry was crisscrossing the Atlantic Ocean. He spent most of his working life at sea and nearly died there, something Maud feared but never foretold. Just after midnight on the 30th of November 1940, Harry's blacked-out cargo ship, the SS Aracatara, while steaming in convoy across the North Atlantic Ocean on a zigzag course at 13 knots, about 230 nautical miles west of Rockall, was torpedoed by the German U-boat U-101. This wasn't a clean kill, as seen on the cinema. The 28-year-old submarine commander, Captain Lieutenant Ernst Mengeren, was obliged to loose three torpedoes into the ship's hull before her engine room boiler exploded, sending the Atacataca and her cargo of 1,600 tons of grapefruits and bananas below the waves to Davy Jones' locker. In the midnight blackness, all 67 petrified crew abandoned the ship into four lifeboats. Harry survived three days adrift in an open boat battling mountainous seas and the freezing temperatures of a North Atlantic winter. From this horrific ordeal, he was lucky to have suffered nothing more than frostbitten toes and, in all probability, a shortened lifespan. He and a quarter of the ship's crew in one of the lifeboats were rescued by the M.S. Pataro, a free French merchantman outbound for South America. The survivors were put ashore in Buenos Aires on Christmas Day. Thirty-seven of Harry's fellow crewmen weren't so lucky. Two lifeboats and all aboard disappeared, lost at sea where they'd be picked over by the crabs and bizarre sea creatures that feast in the murky depths of the Atlantic Ocean. In keeping with the then generous maritime terms of employment, all pay stopped at the moment they abandoned ship. Whilst lazily lounging in lifeboats, the frozen and soaking wet survivors were no longer working on behalf of their employer, but for themselves, trying desperately to save their own lives, a pastime in which the shipping company had little, if any, financial interest. Harry's family found out about the sinking of the SS Atacataca, not via official notification, but by accident. Elsie, Maud and Harry's eldest daughter, saw the headlines, Atacataca torpedoed, in a fellow bus passenger's newspaper, the Liverpool Echo. Needless to say, there was no telling what had befallen the crew. Nobody knew whether they were alive or dead. Elsie's father could have been blown to pieces, burned alive, drowned, or frozen to death, as was the demise of many whose ships were torpedoed and sunk crossing the Atlantic in the middle of winter during World War II. Having succumbed to tales of life at sea as a continuous round of wine, women, and song, Magnus's elder brother, James Arthur Ratcliffe, chose to follow his grandfather's footsteps to become a marine engineer. Magnus couldn't understand why his brother fell for this tale, as the storyteller was a friend's stepfather whose wartime exploits were hardly recommendation for a life on the ocean waves. This jolly tar's Royal Navy experience, after the Japanese torpedoed his warship HMS Prince of Wales somewhere in the South China Sea, spent the rest of the war starving in a Burma Railway slave labour camp, where he'd spent punishment time 
nailed through his fingers to a tree as entertainment for his Japanese captors. But a seafarer's life was James Arthur Ratcliffe's destiny. During the spring of 1959, he signed on to train as an engineer officer cadet with Elder Dempsters, another Liverpool-based shipping company. James's employer plied its trade between Europe and the former slave ports of West Africa, historically regarded as the white man's grave because of its inhospitable climate, deadly diseases and poor sanitation. Following the demise of the British Merchant Navy during the 1980s, James was obliged to sail as a chief engineer for whatever foreign flag shipping company would give him a berth. He remained at sea until ill health forced premature retirement in his early 60s. Tainted by the ignominy of his failure to become a budding field marshal Montgomery in the British Army, Magnus dithered over a panicky and late application to train as an engineer officer cadet in the Merchant Navy. He sat selection exams aboard the modern passenger cargo liner, the Indian Lasker and Goan crewed city of Port Elizabeth, moored on the River Thames in London. This time, destiny smiled on him. He was successful in finding a sponsor for further education and training with Element Lines. One month after his 16th birthday, Magnus left the Isle of Man to commence his cadetship in South Shields, a seafaring town at the mouth of the River Tyne, in the northeast of England. The training course comprised two years at Marine College, followed by 12 months' work and study aboard cargo ships trading worldwide. During this year at sea, he'd sail nearly twice around the world before returning to college for a final year's study. South Shields rewarded Magnus with his first taste of romance, although it didn't last very long. Aisha, a dark-eyed beauty he met at Bailey's Jazz Club, was a shapely and intelligent Palestinian Geordie. One evening, she arrived at the club with her two formally dressed elder brothers in tow. They were there to give Magnus, their sister's friends, and the club the once-over, and report back to the family. Even though everybody enjoyed the evening, from then on, Aisha never appeared at the club, nor played any part in Magnus's life again. Like many young people, once set free from domestic routine and parental influence, his life became a tussle of resolve between the pursuit of disciplined study or hedonism. Initially, the self-indulgent was grabbed with both hands, until fate intervened to pitch him into a studious path to pass the final examinations necessary to proceed with the cadetship. During a mechanics of machines lecture, whilst the students were head down working, the lecturer, Mr. Underwood, whispered in Magnus's ear, The college principal wishes to see you right now. Leaving the class to continue its work, the pair walked in silence along the empty corridors to the principal's office, a place best avoided. After your recent behaviour, Macaulay, I'm considering expelling you from the college, the principal, Dr. Stoddart, stated firmly. Have you anything to say? It wasn't my fault. I didn't want a fight. I didn't start the fight. I was just trying to stop a fight, Magnus replied in shock, then explained in detail what had transpired, finishing, And everybody knows that Flash is a nasty bully, especially when drunk. But you pleaded guilty, stated the principal, who moonlighted as a magistrate. Yes, Magnus stated. That was the advice I got, and I think the lawyer was right. Why plead guilty if you say you were innocent? quizzed the principal, uncomprehendingly. I expected my pals to come forward and explain what happened, but none did, so the lawyer argued that it was impossible to know how the ruckus started, unless a full hearing was held, he explained. 
and I've got no money to pay for that. The obvious solution was to cut my losses by pleading guilty. But now you'll have a conviction recorded against you, stated the bemused principal. I'm sorry, but I'll just have to wear that, he replied, thinking to himself, if I'm expelled, I'll be punished twice for something that wasn't my fault, and my education will be up the spout as well. The college principal sat back and looked at Magnus for a considerable time, then asked, How much did the lawyer charge for advice and representation? A guinea, Magnus replied. After a further long pause, the principal continued, After what you've explained, I reconsidered your expulsion from college, but if I have to deal with you again, you'll be out on your ear, that's all. Back in the empty corridor, Mr. Underwood said quietly, I think you just taught our tame magistrate a salient lesson there, Macaulay. From now on, keep your nose clean, there's a good lad. Adhering to this sound counsel was easy, once ousted from the lodgings where the brawl took place, and which he shared with his partying friends. The move proved to be a blessing in disguise. In the new digs, he found himself in the company of affable, diligent students, whose industry and generosity of spirit rubbed off, inspiring him to work hard and pass his final exams. The diploma Magnus attained at Marine College was precisely that which he would have worked for had he succeeded in gaining entry into Welbeck College with the British Army. The qualifications may have been the same, but had he been awarded the credentials from Welbeck College, his persona and future life would have been very different. There can be little doubt that military discipline would have reset Magnus's social attitudes and remodelled his appearance and demeanour into the Army's stereotype. Had he failed to achieve the prerequisites for officer training at Sandhurst, it's probable that Magnus would have been let go, a discard who'd learned to speak confidently in a clear, well-enunciated voice, having had the guttural slur of an exaggerated Scouse accent, which at the time had been popular at his school, washed out of his mouth with a large slab of well-bet boarding school soap. Magnus was occasionally mystified as to why Providence seemed to intervene at crucial moments in his life by artfully slipping him a wild card that transformed a losing hand into an unbeatable royal flush. Perhaps it was written in the stars that at some point his life would take on some purpose and meaning. Then again, perhaps he made his own luck. After all, he was, like everybody else, the star acting out his own play.